Hello and welcome back to episode 20 of the Ideal Nutrition Podcast. I am Aidan Muir and I am here with my co-host Leah Heigl and today we're going to be talking about tracking changes in body composition and what's the best way to do that. So we're going to keep this one kind of short and sharp but it is something that comes up a lot in practice. Like I find that tracking, you do want to track body composition. If you're making changes to body composition, you want some way of tracking that. Some kind of data is going to help you along that process. I think people can just get a little bit lost in in how to actually go about doing this in the most effective way. Um, So the first thing that we have access to is obviously body weight. So weighing yourself. Um, It's very easy and accessible thing to do. So everyone can have a set of scales at home and it's something you can track at a very little expense. So personally, something that I tend to do with most of my clients is we'll we'll track body weight if that's something we're trying to change. Um, So how to actually go about that? We have to take into account day-to-day fluctuations. I think a lot of people do freak out if their weight kind of goes from like 72 and then the next day it's like 73.5. But we have to understand that that's very normal. Um, There's going to be fluctuations in your weight depending on how much you're eating, carb intake, salt intake, your training, fluids. Like there's going to be so many things that go into changes in your weight that aren't necessarily going to be changes in body composition. So taking one off weights here and there, like your once a week weight, not necessarily giving you the most accurate data for body composition and body weight, like actual changes that are occurring. So something that I recommend is either take your weight very frequently in terms of like daily, um, at the same time, every single day, trying to keep things as consistent as possible and then take weekly averages or you take it very infrequently in terms of like maybe once a month. Um, so rather than doing, a lot of people do like that on the Monday, they weigh themselves. Yeah. Like Monday morning is weigh-in day. That is not the most effective way to track your weight or your body composition. You either want to use like your weekly averages or doing it less frequently than that. Yeah, I, I see that as the best way to do it. Personally, I actually, with my clients, I actually do the once a week. Hey? So like I get people doing a weekly yep. check-in and like I've heard the logic and it makes a lot of sense to me, but I'm like in my system, like, I don't know, like I I, I, it, I only need it once per week. That's all I need. Like, um, But then you're the one making decisions based mm, on that, I guess, not the person. Yeah, and I think I... I don't know whether I'm right or wrong, but I think the kind of person who sees it once per week and freaks out about that is also the same person who weighing themselves every day is still going to freak out about ups and downs. Yeah. Um, And I think unpacking that mindset is important for everybody. And like to a certain degree, I don't think you can solve that. Like I think a lot of people are going to always have that. We can't just logic our way out. Um, But like I I still think it's it's an important thing. Um, Even I saw Lane Norton post something on his or on his feed today. about how one of the meta-analyses is on weight loss maintenance or weight loss success really involved, or one of the outcomes was that people who regain weight often pinpoint weight fluctuations as one of the factors that contributed to them like losing the motivation and stuff like that. And it's like, that's something that kind of needs to be undone anyway. Yeah. It's always like going to be an People issue. reacting to like, that weight fluctuation. Yeah, your weight's going. always going to fluctuate. Yeah. yeah. Um, the example he used, and once again, this is a, a, a psychology issue with everybody anyway, but he talked about investing where it's kind of like 
he didn't use this example I'll talk about. Like if you buy a property, an investment property, you don't see the prices. <laughs> like you don't know that it's gone up like $1,000 one day and down $1,000. You buy stocks and you see the prices go True. up and down. And it's like, well, you've, you've still got to ignore those things. It doesn't matter what it is until you sell it. Like, <laughs> No, that's yeah. like a real, that's a really good way of thinking about it. Because even still when I invest in stocks, that's something that gives me quite a lot of anxiety because I can see the data. Me yeah. owning my house doesn't give me as much anxiety. Yeah. So that's a great way to go. Like think about it. Yeah. But anyway, good to be unpacked basically yeah definitely uh, and in terms of taking like those weekly averages and using those daily weights I do really like it in the concept of doing a very slow bulk so when there is very small yeah. changes happening over a long period of time even weekly weights are not going to they're not going to show you a lot um, even over the long term so I think it does make a little bit more sense especially when you're doing long slow bulks yeah I find that one of the that's honestly one of the biggest things from an accountability perspective etc that has really improved the results of my clients from what they were getting before they saw me to now is just the fact that their weight is tracked. And it's like, say we want to gain just under a kilo per month. We just have that data and we're like, we're just taking weekly averages, monthly averages, going from there and making sure they don't exceed that or drop too far behind that kind of pace. Versus Definitely. if that data is not there, they feel like they're making no progress, they eat more food, they gain quicker and then they gain more body more fat. More body fat. <laughs> yeah. So something I do recommend all the time is using something like the Happy Scales app. So that's an app where you can you can log your weights and you can see your weight trajectory over time. So it takes into account all of those like fluctuations and shows you your overall trend. And I think something like that can be a very useful tool when you're using body weight to, to track progress. Yeah, I, I have never actually recommended that to a client, but I have had clients who've used that. And you can see how much more reassured they are every time they get that little spike because they're like, oh, I'm still in the grain. My average is still. <laughs> and like, that's all we care about. We care about averages. Like, yeah, as 100%. long as it's trending. And another explanation I've kind of thought of, like I can't actually do it over podcasts, but I often think about in terms of like what we call the underlying work. Like if, we're tr if somebody's trying to lose weight, I call the calorie deficit the underlying work where it's kind of like, you know, if you need to say lose 10 kilos or you're trying to lose 10 kilos, you need a calorie deficit. You know that if you average, say, a 500 to 1,000 calorie deficit per day, you're probably going to average somewhere between half a kilo and one kilo per week weight loss. Like it's not exact mathematics, but like roughly that's kind of what we'd expect. And you know that therefore it would take you somewhere between 10 and 20 weeks going at that average rate. And I feel it as like the underlying work is this line that is the average that's taking you there that you're making progress towards that 10 to 20 week kind of time frame. And there's going to be fluctuations around that. And a lot of these fluctuations are explainable carbs water sodium all those things feed into it um some of it it's worth thinking about like it's like if you have a big meal or something like that over the weekend high carb high salt that explains it but like other stuff it's just like it's just random like we don't yeah. need an explanation for everything we don't care about the fluctuation we just care about the underlying work being done basically totally next topic we'll talk about waist circumference this isn't actually something that I use in my own practice, but it is something that is a very easily accessible way of measuring things. Um, going back to that kind of bulking phase where it's like, if you're gaining size and your waist circumference is increasing significantly, you're probably gaining a lot of body fat. Vice versa, if you're trying to lose weight and the scales aren't moving, but your waist circumference is going down significantly, that's awesome because you're recomping. You're probably gaining muscle. And like, I always get like really skeptical because people say that all the time. Like PTs will talk about it on short time frames. Like somebody's scale hasn't moved for like two weeks and they're like, oh, you're gaining heaps of muscle. <laughs> it's like, we know you can't gain that much muscle over two weeks. <laughs> but like if it's over a longer time frame 
and your waist circumference is dropping, you're getting leaner, you are losing body fat. Um, caveats I always want to add on to that though, because I see, this is rare, but like I see a lot of people who have frustrations with the scale and like, okay, I don't use the scale. I'm going to use a better metric and they use waist circumference. And I'm mo- I am mostly talking about females in this case. What if you get your menstrual cycle and you're more bloated sometimes of the month? And that's one of the reasons people like are mad at scales because they fluctuate. <laughs> yeah, and this can fluctuate. And then waist circumference will also fluctuate by even more because that's the specific area where it's going to increase by the most. Like that's a caveat I want to put out there in terms of like there are, it's rare, but there are people out there who are like, oh, I'm not going to use scales, I'm going to use waist circumference because I don't want to be messed up by the scale. But it's like, well, that could still lead to the same issue. So like you've still got to think about it in terms of we care about averages, all those kind of things still. And yeah, it's, it's just another way of measuring, basically. Yeah, 100%. So the third way we can measure body composition is utilising things like DEXA scans, bod pods, underwater weighing. Um, they're all kind of like very similar things. Uh, the most accessible thing is likely going to be something like a DEXA scan. Uh, they're pretty much everywhere. Uh, we'd consider that pretty much like the gold standard for assessing body composition because you at least get a really good reading on what like the amount of body fat is, um, how much muscle mass is there um, and your bone mineral density. So you're getting a, yeah, a good reading on all three of those things. So that's your body composition. Things like scale weight, waist circumference, they're not taking into consideration every aspect of body composition. Um, so specific, specifically, if you're tracking things like muscle growth, um, utilizing a DEXA scan could be one of the best ways to go about that. Uh, but it's not something you would do super frequently. So it's not like you would use that to make short-term changes to a plan. Um, it's more or less something you do every like three, six, 12 months to see overall changes in body composition yeah i'm massive on texas scans like i don't like push on anywhere but like the moment a client cares about body composition change mm-hmm. and they're like i want to measure to see i'm actually making change texas scans my go-to um i like it for the context you talked about like calorie surpluses because i have a lot of natural power lifters who aren't taking anything and have been lifting for five years and they're like oh, yeah, i want to move up weight class i want to gain 10 kilos and it's like if they do that too quickly <laughs> they might gain a lot of body fat and say they gain 10 kilos of size and only four kilos is actual lean body mass. It's not a good thing. They haven't gotten better as a power lifter. And it therefore means if they were only capable of doing that in a calorie surplus, when they cut, they probably are going to lose muscle as well. And it's like, if they're going through a cycle, which like both of us are fans of like, where it's like you, you bulk slowly and then you cut and then you bulk slowly and then you cut. Yeah. If they're going through that cycle and they had that poor of a ratio in their gaining phase, at the end of that long cycle, they probably only have like two kilos extra muscle. It's like, well, you could have stayed lean year round. That's important information to have, especially yeah. when we know like the individual differences in how much muscle mass one person can gain over a certain period of time compared to another person. Yeah. Like if you have that data, you're able to improve, say, your next bulking phase to make sure you can optimize muscle growth whilst minimizing fat gain a little bit more with like with more specificity. Exactly. It just gives you that like real hard data to be like, if that is a situation that does happen, you're like, okay, well, next time let's go twice as slow. Yeah. Like it, it, it's pretty simple when we look at like that perspective. It, it gives you useful information. The next one we want to talk about is skin folds. So do you do, you do skin folds at all? I don't. Um, only because majority of my clientele is online. So that yeah. would be pretty impractical. Yeah, low key. That's actually one of the reasons why I don't do it as well. Because I, I very confidently always say my service online and in person is the same. 
And if I did skin folds, I'd be lying if I made that statement. So like, that's one reason why I don't. Um, there's a few other reasons. The, the honest other reason, which is actually going to feed into this is, so I got, I got my qualification and to do that, you have to be within 2% of yourself every time you do it. So by definition, you have to be incredibly accurate with yourself. Like that is part of how it makes it such an accurate measurement, which I'll talk about in a second. And also within 10% of the gold standard practitioner, like somebody who's like a level three Isaac accredited or whatever. Um, within six months, I'd lost that ability. Um, as in like I was working on a rugby team and there was people who'd come in who didn't have abs. 12 weeks later of the preseason, they had abs. And my calipers would say they gained body fat. And I'm like, okay, I suck at this now. <laughs> but that's going to lead into two, two things I want to talk about. So one of them, skin folds are incredible. They're actually one of the most accurate way of measuring things um, with a good practitioner. Mm-hmm. That's a starting point. Um, arguably even better than DEXA because you can do them more frequently. You could do skin folds on a weekly basis and it's a far more accurate measure. DEXA can be far more messed up by water changes and stuff like that, whereas skin folds, you're literally just measuring fat. Like massive changes in hydration can affect it, but like you're literally just measuring the body fat somebody has, um, which is something we obviously care about. It falls apart a bit when you try and translate it to body fat percentage, which a lot of people try and do. They try and do formulas and often these formulas underrepresent body fat. Like you could be... 12% 12% body fat on a DEXA and 7% on skin folds, for example, is a common thing I would see. But obviously it depends on the formula you use, but usually they do a sum of seven or a sum of five sites on the body and then use an equation to figure things out from there. So really accurate when done well. But I kind of share my story, and I'm, I'm not ashamed of that, but like I share my story to be like, I'm an honest guy <laughs> and I don't think many people are as honest as me. And I'm like, if I sucked six months later how many other people suck? (laughs) I think there's a lot of people doing skin folds that have no business doing skin folds. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the other thing. Like a lot of people don't get the qualification, which is fine. I'm I'm all for people. Like if you're good at something, I don't care if you're qualified. That's my honest opinion. But like um, (laughs) they they never would have had to pass a thing to be like, oh, I was within 2% of myself. Like they never would have had to pass that to start off with. Um, The other thing that I was going to go back with the rugby club is like, Apart from that, like one example I use about the people who didn't have abs and, and then did later on, like apart from that, that was pretty rare. The ones I really struggled with are the large people. Mm-hmm. People who have a lot of body fat. And this is this is pretty clear in the research. It's like when people are above, say, 30% body fat, I don't want to put a number on it, but like quite high body fat, skin folds become really bad. Like they're, they're not really accurate because there's too much for the calipers to grab, etc. It just doesn't work very well. Um, not going to name names. So there's even another local coach who, who's like um, PT bodybuilding coach who's working with one of my clients who was quite large and they were using skin folds on her and like readings were just all over the place. And I was never going to tell that because I'm never going to discredit like another person like or anything like that. But like crazy, like you, you can't use them on, on quite large people. And then there's also the individual variation. Oh, the last thing to also add is, you can't switch practitioners if you're using skin folds because that's one of the things I said in terms of like you can you have to be within 2% of yourself to be good at skin folds but 10% of the gold standard. 10% is a pretty decent variation. If you switch practitioners multiple times, you're going to get different readings every time basically. So the last thing we're going to talk about in regards to tracking changes to body composition is one that is very popular um, and that's like your BIA machines and BIA scales, so your bioelectrical impedance analysis. So you're going to see this in a lot of different gyms, um, a lot of PTs will use it um, because it's one of those things that's a lot cheaper than a DEXA scan, um, but it's a little bit more interesting than a, just a plain old weight scale. Um, so it's 
a machine where most of them is like they're a scale and you will hold some handles um, and it sends like an electrical current through your body and that's how it reads your body composition. I won't spend too long on this, but they're very, very inaccurate. So they've not been validated for use in terms of actually measuring someone's body composition with any kind of accuracy. So it's not like you'll be getting a good idea of what your actual body composition is by having a BIA analysis done. Um, But they're one of those things that are going to be everywhere. Uh, In regards to tracking your body composition over time, uh, they're also not great at that. So we know there could be some consistency in that if that you really, really plan it. So if your training is always the same around the time you're doing it, if your food intake is always the same, your fluid intake, um, and all these things that can mess with the analysis, if you keep all those super consistent, you might be able to get somewhat of a decent reading um, in regards to body composition changes over time. But the logistics around doing that and like realistically, can you do that? Probably not. Yeah, particularly on a frequent basis. And like, like I'm not going to comment necessarily on accuracy of like in body, like, as I said, quite expensive, all those kind of things, but like for, for the cheaper end, it, it is, it is pretty messed up in that I, I worked in a, a job where I was doing home visits. So I, I would have the scales myself and like, I would go around and, um, every week we would use them with our clients. Cause that was just part of what, what we had to do as part of the job. And I use them on myself. And over like a multiple day time, like multiple day kind of time frame, I'd be anywhere from five percent to twenty percent body fat. And Huge. I was like, God damn! Like I'm using this on my clients, and like we we talked earlier about how scales like mess with people's head. Imagine yep. being like, Oh, I'm twenty percent body fat today, but I was five percent like two days ago. What have I done wrong? Like, um, so like that was obviously fine for me because I was like, This is, but like that would mess with some clients, and like. I, I had one client who um, they seem to be more inaccurate when you have big fluctuations in water weight, as in yes. like my interpretation was that like, obviously we know that's going to affect things like just as a quick, like side tangent. But like, if you do say they're accurate, say they're hundred percent accurate and you got on it and said, it said you were 10% body fat, for example, and then you drank a liter of water and gained a kilo of non-fat mass. You gained a kilo of fat mass. Your body fat percentage goes down because you just drank water. Sure. <laughs> so like, firstly, that's that's a flaw in even accurate body fat measures because it's like you have a bad weekend, so to speak. You eat heaps of carbs, have heaps of sodium, gain heaps of water weight, and your body fat percentage drops. Yeah, it's like percentages in general, probably not the best thing to go Yeah, off. and like I'm not opposed to body fat percentage. I kind of like it as a measure, but like sure. if you're measuring on a weekly basis, it starts rewarding you for eating more carbs, basically. Um, So that's one thing to think about. But like what I was getting at with the the scales is it seemed to, whether I'm right or wrong in my analysis, but I was using it with like hundreds of people for multiple years, I found that like it seems like those water fluctuations would be over-exaggerated on the scales in terms of like if somebody was very well hydrated and carved up, it would make them significantly leaner. And if they were very dehydrated, it would go the other way in terms of it would say they gained heaps of body fat. Like I'm talking more than 7% swings and stuff like that. So yeah. yeah, definitely something that like if you're trying to measure body composition, a 7% swing over the course of a weekend is probably missing, missing the mark a bit. Yeah. I don't ever really find any time where I'm like, oh yeah, we'll use BIA as a good way yeah. to, to track body <laughs> composition changes. If anything, like if people come in with those results, I'm like, cool, I'll look at them, but yeah. they don't mean a lot to me because I know they're 
not super accurate and the accuracy can definitely differ between the kind of machine you're using and you know generally the results from them are not going to tell you a, a bunch about your actual body composition so that wraps things up for episode 20 um I want to say thank you to everybody who has given a review to the podcast. Um, funnily enough, I, I said this on Instagram, but like I'd been looking at the reviews and I've been looking in the wrong place. And I was like, we don't have that many reviews. <laughs> What's going on? Like, and like, this is not a massive podcast. Like, oh, we don't have a huge audience or anything like that. But I was like, yeah, do people care about us? <laughs> and like, I looked and there's like, I found where the reviews actually are kept. And there's like way more than I thought there was. It's blown my expectations away. So I want to say thank you to everybody who has done that. And if you haven't and you would consider doing that, I would greatly appreciate that. And Leah would as well. Yeah.